Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is David Whelan. His last name is spelled W-H-E-L-A-N, and he just published the book Mind Games, The Assassination of John Lennon. I bought the book. I talked to him in December 9th, 2023. Today is January 12th, 2024. But I bought I bought the book, and I read it. And if you're watching this on Rockman or Twitter, or X, or whatever they call it right now, you can see how many how many pages I've leafed in this book. It's a very important book. I, I highly recommend people check this out. And uh, there's a lot of information that is not covered in other books, to my knowledge. So people should listen to our early, if you haven't listened to our earlier discussion, in December, I recommend you do that. But there's a lot we didn't cover in our last conversation. But before we kind of get into some of these other themes, maybe the people around Lennon and some the law firms who are involved in prosecuting, so-called prosecuting Chapman and things like that. Before we get into that, I'm going to read into the record. I was just talking to David in the pre-show about John Lennon and his lyrics and his kind of political activism and how powerful his stuff was. And it's really kind of actually relevant to today's time where we're just right at the brink of like a global war or something, some kind of catastrophic thing. It, like, wow, pre, it probably happened before World War One and World War Two, where people kind of slept walk into it. But I'm going to read Working Class Heroes. So this was in 1970. So I think he wrote this 71 or 70, 71. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small by giving you no time instead of at all till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. They hurt you at home and they hit you at school. They hate if you're clever and they despise a fool till you're so effing crazy you can't follow their rules. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. When they've tortured and scared you for 20 odd years, then they expect you to pick a career. When you can't really function, you're so full of fear. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. Keep you dope with religion and sex and TV. And you think you're so clever and classless and free. But you're still effing peasants as far as I can see. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. There's room at the top they are telling you still. But first you must learn how to smile as you kill. If you want to be like the folks on the hill. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. So that was John Lennon, working class hero. And I think we could probably do a whole show just on the lyrics and his songs and stuff like that, but how impactful he was on the left and how much he was in the kind of like the social upheaval movement, friends with uh, Leary and all these other characters and the sit-ins and be-ins and all that stuff. But anyway, we can kind of get into that. So David Whelan, welcome back to the show. Hi, Hi William. Thanks for having me back. So for people who may not have heard our first show, maybe you can just kind of do a brief overview about how you got into this. I mean, your book has like 10 five-star reviews here in the States, like it's very well received. Maybe you can just talk like about your three years of research, and then we can kind of get into some of these other topics that we didn't talk about in our first discussion. Sure. Uh, I'm a television producer uh, born and raised in London, uh, North London. Uh, very lucky, got to work at Thames Television when I was 17 and have been working in TV ever since for the last 40 years. Um, three years ago, uh, I heard some information about John Lennon's murder. I wasn't particularly interested in John Lennon or, or his murder, to be honest with you. But it was information about the doorman being potentially a CIA operative. So I, uh, I started to research that. I soon found out that he wasn't a CIA operative, but he was still a very strange guy. And then I started to look into the murder 
after checking out the doorman and, and what i realized is that john lennon's murder is uh, and the people who describe it in documentaries and articles and, and books it, it's quite confusing and and not very clear in regards to where he was and where chapman was his alleged killer and there's a lot of anomalies there and that started to trouble me and i just got further and further into it and the further i got into it the more anomalies i found and then i found there was anomalies in the medical discrepancies about who treated john and what kind of wounds he had and then it really started to kick off when i started to talk to people and started to talk to the medical people and the, and the lead detective and various people that worked at the dakota and then i realized that it, there wasn't a proper investigation done at the time and, and then basically it, it sort of opened up for me completely when i started getting into mark chapman and his background and how he uh was pretty much as far as i could see led into this situation as a as a manchurian patsy um and i felt compelled at that point william to uh to write a book is the only one way i could do it really i had to kind of get all this information down i was thinking about doing blogs i was thinking about doing podcasts but i thought you know I'll, I'll, i've done some writing in television so i'll i'll write a book and um it, it it took a long time it's been it's been it's been a dark road a dark journey i wasn't looking to do it i wasn't when I started investigating this case, I, I had no preconceptions about second shooters or Manchurian candidates or or cover-ups or anything like that. I just, I went in totally blind, totally open-minded. Uh, and after my investigation was complete, though it's still ongoing, to be honest, I can't really call it complete, but when the book was done, uh, I realized that the only sort of credible scenario with regards to how John Lennon was assassinated was that he was shot by a second shooter. Right. So something else, something strange is going on other than the cover story. Like it just doesn't make sense. Like a tight no. and like the body ends up inside and there's yeah. dis discrepancies between who the, the medical professionals and what the cover story is. And just going to, mm. I mean, the official narrative is it's worth just going over just quickly what the official narrative is. Okay. The official narrative is that John got shot in his driveway leading up to his security door, vestibule door going into his Dakota home. Uh, from by Mark Chapman, who was 20, roughly 20, 15, 20 feet behind him, over behind John to his left. Mark was looking across Chapman to John's right, uh, the right at the end of the driveway. Uh, Chapman, by all accounts, by Chapman's account himself and by the official narrative, shot John in the back four times with five bullets, one bullet missing. It's pretty, uh, Chapman's been consistent with that from the, the, the night it happened to, to now. And the narrative in the media has been pretty consistent about that. John got shot in the front. So that, that's, a, that's a big problem. Uh, all the medical people who saw John's wounds have agreed that he was shot in the front. So then you have to kind of figure out, okay, so how did, how did that happen? How did we get to, uh, you know, um, imagine that John was shot in a way that he wasn't? And of course, that's down to a lazy media, possibly a compliant media. Uh, so you have to kind of, um, I had to, beyond that, I had to kind of try and figure out where John did get shot because if he, for the official narrative to work, John has to be shot by Mark Chapman in the driveway where Mark can see him. Because uh, Mark was standing by the street, John was at the end of the driveway and it was a kind of roofed, uh, contained area. Um, John can't be shot inside the Dakota, but by all evidence, that's where John was shot. So what the official narrative William wants us to believe is, John was shot four times, uh, with, with apparently hollow point bullets, but I don't think they were. Uh, one bullet that was found in John wasn't hollow point, but we'll just gloss over that for now. John then, after having these four big holes put in his body, let's go with the official narrative and say it was the back, though it was the front. 
Uh, one of those bullets completely severed John's subclavian left artery, which is a very important artery that helps control your left side. That was completely blown away. All the medical people have uh, agreed on that. Even, even the chief medical officer who did the autopsy agreed on this. So with these catastrophic wounds around his heart, John then walks up to a vestibule door, pulls it open, walks up some steps, uh, goes into a lobby through some other mahogany doors that he opens, uh, turns immediate left through some swinging saloon doors, past a, a front desk into a concierge's front office, open plan front office, where he says to the concierge, I've been shot, I've been shot. He then carries on this fantastical journey with these four big holes in him into a further back office where he collapses and was found by the police face down. So um, you have to kind of, when, when I talk to the medical people, the nurses and doctors who saw John's wounds up close, they, they, they just literally cannot believe that people are saying this about what John achieved after he was shot because they all agree on one thing, that he was dead almost instantly from those wounds. You know, he had four big holes in his chest, his heart, all the veins and arteries around his heart were blown away. His subclavian was gone. Um, but we have to, because of course the police and the NYPD and, and the, the, the media and all the people who are investigating this, they have to kind of build a scenario where John's body got in that back office face down because it, he had to be moving. Otherwise, how did he get from the driveway, which is where Mark had to have shot him to be in this location? So I think that's where it's all kind of gone wrong for them. And what's interesting when you read Beatles books and blogs and articles, there's been thousands written about it. They all say different things. Some say he was shot in the driveway. Some say he was shot in the hallway. Some say in a security office, whatever the hell that is, a security area, stairway, you name it. Multiple locations John was shot in. But, but there was only one location I think he could have been shot in, and that's inside the vestibule stairway area. And in fact, the actual um, lead detective, Ron Hoffman, has actually said to me in an interview that, you know, that's where he thought John was shot, on the stairway, on the steps, which is a place that Mark Chapman could not even see. So once we figure that out, I think you're getting close to understanding the murder and what really happened that night. Right. It's almost like an Agatha Christie murder mystery. Like every whose story is telling the truth because they're not consistent at all. There's not even two guys who tell a consistent story in some ways. Like There's it's not. just like, yeah, it's like one of the strangest things where you can't get a group of people to like, oh, this is what we saw confirmed. Like even Yoko Ono's story is weird. Like, I mean, yeah, I, she I, is. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I managed to get um, the lead detective's notebooks and paperwork. He basically, I think the lead detective, Ron Hoffman, is a very old man now. He's in his 80s. He's, he's not been well. Uh, and I think he kind of wanted to absolve himself. I, I can't, you know, can't speak for him. I can't read his mind. But I have a feeling the reason he offered to allow me to purchase his, his paperwork and his notebooks was because I think he knew he didn't do a good job. And he kind of admitted that, you know, when I started to talk to him about the medical and stuff, he kind of said, well, I guess I didn't do a very good job, did I? And I think he was told not to do a good job. I think he was told to uh, to not look too closely. You know, we've got our guy, Ron. Uh, don't don't go digging into any sort of you know disturbing holes. But when, once they got hold of Ron Hoffman's notebooks, all of the interviews that he did on the case were in there. And sometimes there were multiple interviews, as there were with Yoko Ono. He interviewed her twice on the night and twice afterwards. And what's what's weird about Yoko Ono is every statement she gives uh, is different. Sometimes she's ahead, sometimes John's ahead, sometimes they swap positions in the driveway. Sometimes she goes in immediately after John, sometimes she doesn't. Uh, sometimes John says he's shot, sometimes he doesn't. 
Uh, and there's another statement she gave to another detective, which I've got hold of. And again, it, it's different to the other four. So we've got five varying statements. Now, that could be trauma. It could be shock. Um, but you'd think there'd be some kind of commonality in in what she's saying. But I couldn't really find a commonality. So we have to kind of guess what she did. And I, I'm pretty certain Yoko ran for cover once Chapman started firing. And I, I believe Mark Chapman was firing blanks, by the way. Should state that for the record right now. I believe once she heard gunfire, she dived to the back of the vestibule, behind the vestibule into it. Or there's a courtyard and an iron gate. I think she hid behind that that door. Uh, Mark Chapman said he saw her head pop around that far vestibule door, which is where I think she was hiding. She's possibly was slightly ashamed that she ran. Who could blame her? But that might be what's coming into play here, which is why she's potentially not being so truthful about what really happened. Um, I think with regards to placing her. Where, you know, after the gunfight, after after shots were heard, we got another witness called Nina Rosen, who came on the scene quite quickly. And she said she saw Yoko in the courtyard, which is an area beyond the driveway, screaming. Uh, so I think that's pretty much what happened. I think Yoko heard what as anyone would do. If you hear gunfire behind you, you're going to go running for cover. <laughs> I think it's just a natural human uh, reaction. She's certainly not going to stroll quietly into the building. So I think she ran, uh, but I think she ran away from the vestibule in the stairway area. And, that, and again, that makes sense. Their studio was beyond the courtyard. It was there. It, it, if you go into the courtyard beyond the driveway, that's where their studio access was. So she could have been running for that place. John definitely went into the vestibule and up the stairs. And that, I think, is where a second shooter was waiting for him. Because that's the only way I think John can be shot four times in what the doctors and nurses called a tight professional grouping above his heart. Um, so a lot of people think that maybe Mark Chapman called out to John and John turned again, not true. Uh, we know this because Mark Chapman has never said he did this, which is not that important because Mark said a lot of crazy stuff over the years and very dubious people have got to Mark, which we'll discuss, I'm sure, in a moment. But also uh, one of Yoko, Yoko Ono's statements is she actually said we did not turn around as we were walking towards the door to the vestibule as we were going in together. So I don't think John did turn around. And even if he did turn around, just imagine this scenario, William. Mark Chapman allegedly calls out his name. John turns around from, say, 15, 20 feet in a dark, in a darkened driveway. And this driveway was really dark in these days, you know, very sort of low lighting, orange low lighting. Mark is supposed to have shot John four times in a tight professional grouping above his heart with a revolver, not an automatic weapon. And we're, we're, we're meant to believe that John right, You have to re-aim re after every time with the revolver. Exactly. Yeah. And, and John, yeah, you've got it. And John is supposed to stand there and, and just let him do this in right. a stupor right. without right. dropping down or moving to the left or moving to the right. So it's complete nonsense. John had to be in a bottleneck stairway corridor for someone, I think, to go up to. And the doctors and nurses all said that the person who shot John, in their estimation, and these are professional doctors and nurses who've seen gunshot wounds all their career, they said the person who shot John had to be sort of sort of two, three feet away from him, maybe even one or two feet away from him. Very close. An automatic. An automatic. automatic. Pop, 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 in the pop. right spot, it's even better than shooting in the heart, actually, because you're destroying the heart's ability to function. Exactly. Right it, exactly. So, so we've got to kind of, you know, the, the, it's very disturbing, though, how john got into that back office and we can perhaps get into theories about how that could happen my book certainly puts plenty of theories out there but but it's kind of um yeah the whole thing is it's, it's you know I've, I've gone out now and i've discussed this in lots of different environments william and it's it's incredible how many people don't understand any of this they're, they're, they're all convinced that yoko saw everything 
There was multiple witnesses on the street. There were no witnesses on the street. Um, you know, John was shot in the back. He was shot in the driveway. Cops picked him up. It's kind of like, no, Yoko didn't see her husband get shot by Chapman's bullets. Because one thing Yoko, to her credit, has never said, and she's had 43 years to say it, is I saw Mark Chapman shoot my husband. Now, she, if she did say that, wouldn't that have been a very easy thing for her to say? Everyone would have gone, okay, yeah, she must have turned around and saw it. No one would have just, you know, disbelieved her. But she, she very interestingly has never said that because I don't think she did see anything. I think the second she heard gunfire, she went diving down for cover behind the far vegetable door. Yeah, and I think so. And a lot of people have an interest in telling a fake story or inserting them into the stories. I think you mentioned that. And Rosen is actually one of the more interesting witnesses because it was pure happenstance that she was there. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's been, her her witness statement was concealed for 40, 43 years until my book was released last last month Uh, because, um, uh, well, I don't know why. We we know obviously she gave the statement because it's in Ron Hoffman's notebook, which is where I found it. Someone, Albert Goldman, a very famous writer, mentioned her briefly in his very controversial book, The Lives of John Lennon. He mentioned that Nina Rosen uh, sort of came back and saw the scene, but he didn't go into any detail uh, Goldman. But what's interesting about Rosen is when she came back on the scene, just a few seconds after gunfire, she sort of walked past with her dog. She, it was it was a, a route for her walking her dog every night. And once she heard gunfire, she came back on the scene very quickly. She saw some very interesting things. She saw Chapman and the doorman standing by the roadside, which is great because that puts Chapman not in the vestibule. It, you know, we were, other witnesses have got him by the roadside. So he's by the sidewalk. He wasn't inside the driveway or the vestibule. But Nina confirms that. There was no gun which is quite interesting. There surely should have been a gun. The, the, the gun official narrative is that Mark either dropped it or the doorman shook it out of his hand and then the doorman kicked it to the back of the driveway. The problem with that scenario is you've got the, they've got the doorman going up to Mark Chapman. Allegedly, he said, you know what you've done, blah, blah, blah. There's all this stuff that we can't confirm. But then the doorman apparently kicks it to the back. Now, that, that to me is something that's going to take at least 10 to 12 seconds to do. Um, but when Nina Rosen got there, she could see no gun at all. No gun on Chapman, no gun on Padermo, no gun on the floor, no gun. But apparently a gun was kicked to the back of the driveway. She also said she couldn't see Lennon. So he's he's not there. So he's right, so that's inside. confirmed. So he's not in this huge in walkway in no. between the street and the, exactly. in the interior area. Right? He's gone. He's gone. Because he didn't get hit. He didn't get hit by Chapman's bullets. He, he got right. hit by... Right. But, I mean, that could, she's she's confirming that it, he wasn't in the walkway in between the street and the interior Correct. garden. Correct. Now, the official narrative would like us to believe that Chapman hit him four times, and then he opened the door and went off on this incredible journey. So, for the official narrative, that still works for them. But what's interesting also about Nina Rosen is she said she saw Yoko in the courtyard, which is an area she would have known because she walked past this spot every day of her dog. So she knew the difference between the driveway and the courtyard, which is an area beyond the driveway, behind an iron gate. She saw her in the courtyard screaming. So that's interesting because Yoko Ono has said in a couple of her statements that she ran directly in after her husband. She clearly didn't do that, if we believe Nina Rosen. You've also got a secondary, very interesting witness called Jay Hastings, a concierge, the man who said he saw John run past him, and we know John could not do that. So that immediately puts Jay Hastings, in my opinion, uh, into the, let's put it, let's be kind, the dubious category when it comes to his testimony. But Jay Hastings has said that Yoko came in immediately after John. Now we know, according to Nina Rosen, this did not happen. So why is Jay saying this? Who knows? It was a long time ago. Jay has an interesting, you know, an interesting background. And in a lot of these interesting deaths 
some of the people surrounding them have interesting backgrounds and then their lives change within a very close association to the murders right now he's things yeah yeah let's get into jay jay's an interesting man jay, jay's the concierge sometimes in beatles books shockingly he's called the doorman i can see why they made that mistake because sometimes jay did double up and do the door um in fact on the night of john's murder or let's call it what it is john's assassination leading up to that night jay was working the door and jose padermo the cuban doorman was working the back office because he had bad legs rather suspiciously on the night of the murder the doorman, according to Jay, said to Jay, Jose said to Jay, can I go outside and work the door tonight? Because it's quite a mild evening and my legs are feeling better. So that was interesting that on that particular night, Jose made sure he was working the door and not Jay. Um, so Jay Jay turns up working at the Dakota in 1978. Uh, he left high school round about sort of 1971. Uh, then from 71 to 78, you've got seven kind of strange years where he said he did a three-year art course uh, how you do a three-year art course in seven years, I don't know. He said he had a bad leg, he had bad knees. He, it's just not a convincing backstory for Jay. So I don't, I can't really say for definite what Jay did leading up to 1978, but I don't think he spent seven years doing a three-year arts course, that's for sure. Um, then you've got Jay's testimony from the night, and Jay has been fairly consistent. He's changed his story a little bit over time. Jay said the first person who spoke to Jay was a Rolling Stones journalist who turned up on the night of the murder, incredibly, because his parents, Greg Katz's parents, actually lived above the driveway where John was shot, which is an incredible stroke of luck for Greg Katz to get the scoop. So he made out he was visiting his parents and then got into the concierge's office area where all the police were and doing all the investigation was going on. And he asked um, Jay Hastings if he could talk to him and, and get his statement. Interestingly, I don't, I'm not even sure I put this in my book. But interestingly, Jay rang up to Yoko's office and spoke to her accountant slash lawyer slash fixer, a guy called Richie De Palma, and said to Richie, is it OK if I talk to the Rolling Stone? Which is a very strange thing for Jay to do, to check in with Team Yoko that you could do that interview. But anyway, they said, yeah, go ahead and do it, Jay. And Jay said that John staggered in to his concierge area, said he'd been shot kind of ran into the back office and dropped some tapes. Now we'll, we'll come back to these tapes because sometimes Jay said there were tapes. Sometimes Jay said there wasn't tapes. So it's kind of, he's not been very consistent on these tapes. We know John, because I've gone through the evidence vouchers, had a Walkman and a tape on him. So that was on his belongings. Why there were tapes plural scattered and they're not actually in the police inventory vouchers, I cannot tell you. But anyway, so that's the first night. Jay's laid down the legend that John ran past him uh and said he was shot and fell into the back office jay went in there apparently took his tie off to do a tourniquet uh sometimes jay said he took his jacket off sometimes in, in, since then he said he didn't take his jacket off jay's changed things a little bit but hey it was a long time ago so let's be kind on jay but here's where we get to some problems with jay problem number one is i spoke to joe manny the uh lift operator who amazingly heard gunfire and came up from the basement and found Jose Padermo walking around a gun at the back of the driveway. And Jose said to Joe Manny, take this gun downstairs. Now, why Jose Padermo didn't take that gun down himself, we'll never know. But he wanted Joe Manny to come and take it away. Joe did this. When Joe came back up again to, to the scene, and we know all this is true because Joe had a couple of co-workers whose statements matched Joe's. Joe went into the lobby area and Joe saw some interesting things. Two very interesting things. First thing Joe said he saw was he saw, he saw Jay Hastings covered in blood. Now, there's an Apple TV series we can talk about in a little while that actually has Joe Manny on there saying that Jay Hastings was 
covered. And he does this with his hands, covered in blood. Now, Jay has also said to me, um, uh, not Jay, Joe Manny has also said to me that that John's uh, that Jay's shirt was full of blood. So he's used the word covered and full. So clearly Jay's shirt was had a lot of blood on it. And I said to Joe Manny, I said, why did why do you think Jay Hastings shirt was covered in blood, Joe? Because John's supposed to have run past him. He didn't really have much interaction with his body. And he said, Joe Manny said to me, the lift operator, that Jay Hastings, the concierge, said to him that his shirt was covered in blood and full of blood because John fell into his arms. OK, on the night of the murder, that's what that was the excuse that Jay gave to Joe as to why his shirt was covered in blood. Now, here's the problem. I've spoken to Jay about this a few times and Jay said, no, I never said that to Joe Manning. Uh, and that's not the reason why my shirt was covered in blood. So I will get to what Jay Hastings said his shirt was covered in blood in a minute, why he said he had it covered in blood. Another thing Joe Manning said he saw was a pool of blood in an indentation in a marble floor in the front office. Now, this is a problem because John's body was found in the back office. And according to Jay Hastings, John runs through the front office and collapses in the back office. So what's this pool of blood doing in the front office? So I said to John Manny, I said, how did you, why did you think there was a pool of blood in the front office and John's body in the back? And he said, oh, they just must have moved him. You know, Jay and Yoko must have got scared and moved his body. So I said to Joe, uh, to Jay Hastings, I said, what's, what's this about this blood in the front office, Jay? He said, there was no blood in the front office. So he just completely flatly denied it. Uh, but I can't wow. understand why Joe Manny would lie about such a thing. And so there's a picture of it in your book. Like the picture yeah, well, no, is there's there. A, there. There's a picture of the blood in the back office in my book. That's very important. Okay. Well, so, well, so Jay Hastings has confirmed to me that that is a pool of blood in the back office. So, yeah, there is a picture gotcha. from that. So if they, but what's interesting is, William, if they took a picture of the back office of a pool of blood, you'd have thought that the crime scene photo photographers would have took a picture of the front office with a pool of blood. So it'd be very interesting to see if that pool of blood in the front office image turns up in the future. I suspect it won't. But anyway, so let's get down to how Jay Hastings is now trying to explain why his shirt was covered in blood. According to Jay, and he's told me this a few times, uh, and he's actually said this now, I believe, on a few documentaries. Um, he said that when the two police officers came to find John's body in the back office, one of them, Herb Framberger, who I've spoken to, I've spoken to both officers, Palmer and Framberger, they both said that, you know, Framberger said he felt a spank pulse on John. Now, if you talk to the nurses and doctors, they said that he was dead. So there's no way there was a pulse there. Possibly Framberger got confused. But this decision made Framberger and Palmer decide to carry John's body from the back office out to a police car and drive him off to hospital, which was a real uh, a, a dreadful thing in many ways, because once you do that, you're spoiling the crime scene. You know, you, you just it, they, they literally wrecked the crime scene and they really didn't help the investigation by doing that. Now, Framberger and Palmer both told me categorically that only they carried John's body out. Framberger took the legs, Palmer took the, the, the head and the, and the arms. They said they carried John's body out. We've got witnesses, Joe Manny, we've got cops on the street. We've even got witnesses now, passers-by saying that they saw cops carrying John's body out. Nobody else, just cops. We've even got Mark Chapman saying, I saw two cops carry John's body out. So we know it was just these two cops. Because why, why would Mark Chapman lie about such a thing? Problem is, Jay Hastings says, no, I carried John's body out and they gave me the bloody business end, as he called it, i.e. the arms and legs where John was shot in his chest. And he says that's how his shirt got covered in blood. But that's not how his shirt got covered in blood. We know that's that, that's a lie. I can categorically say that he's lying there because there's multiple witnesses who say he's lying. So why is Jay trying to come up with an excuse 
for having his shirt covered in blood. And just to give Jay Hastings' shirt just one more little twist, Jay Hastings sold his shirt 10 years ago, his alleged shirt that he was wearing on the night of the murder, covered in blood, uh, at auction with an LP, a signed LP, um, uh, that John gave him apparently. And uh, he got, I don't know, something like $30,000 for it. But, but what's interesting is, is the shirt has no blood on it. Yeah, it has a few specks wow. of what I can see are kind of sweat stains. No blood. It's almost a spotless shirt. So it's like, wow. wh where's the shirt that Joe Manny saw covered in blood, Jay? Where's the shirt that Joe Manny said was full of blood? So Jay Hastings, as far as I'm concerned, has a lot of questions to answer. Right. I mean, it's just the stories are so strange. Like yeah. everybody's got a motive or something is off. Everything's a little off. It's not well, that clear. is with Jay, yeah, totally off. Yeah. And what's interesting about Jay is as well also, which and I've, 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 I spoke to Jay just before Christmas because I wanted to warn him before my book came out. And I said to him, look, Jay, my book doesn't look good for you. You know, there's a lot of people who are now, you know, their statements all match and they don't match your statements. So I just want to warn you. And his, his, his attitude was, I'm not bothered. They're just, you know, cops lie. Other, you know, other people, it's just their opinion very arrogant i would say about it just totally secure in his position but I, I felt obliged to tell him that once my book comes out you know you're gonna, you're gonna have people asking you questions um but what's interesting is he left very quickly after the murder he left about sort of two he's not we're not sure the exact dates possibly two weeks maybe three weeks after the murder and i said to him why did you leave jane he said well there's two reasons one they started to bring in a security card protocol, which he called security theater, which he didn't think was necessary, which was a kind of card with his face on and his ID. Possibly there would have been background checks as well, I suppose, if you're doing these security cards. Jay didn't like that for some reason, didn't like the fact there were security cards coming in. And the second very unconvincing reason Jay gave for leaving was apparently he was fired for being late. Hmm. And I said, what, they fired you just once for being late after all that trauma that you went through? they fired you for being late it doesn't yeah. make any sense no no no. usually no, you get doesn't... reprimanded you have to do it two or three times unless they want to just get rid of you for some other reason you know use it no no sense and and then yeah. he then he kind of disappears for the next 30 years says he's worked in various art commercial businesses uh is for me a bit of a ghost um an interesting man for sure yeah. and yeah. uh you know his story doesn't stack up and his story is very disturbing obviously because jay is in a position you know, in that vestibule stairway area where he might have seen a second shooter. Um, and, I, you know, interesting to sort of surmise how John's body got from that stairway into that. Yeah, office. it reminds me of the story of Thane Eugene Caesar, who like has a short term security job, somehow was close to Kennedy and then disappears, ends up in Philippines for the rest of his, you know, until he passes away. Like, well, that's weird. That's yeah, strange. really weird, really weird. And and Joe Manny, you know, Joe Joe's you know, he's classic kind of New Yorker. I like Joe. I, I, I kind of believe Joe. You can't, there's no reason for Joe to lie. And, and Joe, Joe, but Joe has lied. And I should put this out. And this is the problem: is people do with this case. This always been a big problem for me. People try and insert themselves more into it than they should be. And and what Joe said recently is that he came up. He tried to say it to me. That he came up on his own to get the gun right and take the gun down in the lift and he saw Padermo but but I've got two witness statements from his two workers from his two co-workers Joe Gresick and Victor Cruz in Hoffman's notebooks who both say they came up they separate separate interviews to Hoffman they came up with Joe they went down with Joe and this is actually good for Joe because it means Joe's not lying right 
But Joe wants to, you know, I said to Joe, don't, don't try and draw them out of history and say you did it by yourself, Joe, because it's just, it's better for you if you actually admit what really happened. You had a couple of witnesses who saw you do all this stuff. Because some people have said, oh, Joe was the shooter because, you know, he shot him from the, 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 you know, the elevator entrance on the opposite side of the vestibule and it was Joe Manny who did it and he took the go. And I said, you know, to take all that stuff away, Joe, you're better off just being truthful about the fact that you had two co-workers who came up with you and two work, co-workers who said they went down with you with a gun. So it takes suspicion away. But Joe, Joe was kind of keen to just do that solo now. So it's kind of, it, it, it does sum up, it illustrates really well, I think, that Joe Manny thing that, People just, you know, they want their little 15 minutes. They want to, and it, it was the problem with the doctors, obviously, we all know it's, but I think it's kind of very well known now, even with the official narrative people, that, that, that a, a doctor called Dr. Lynn for 30 years said that he tried to save John Lennon's life when it was actually another doctor called Dr. Halloran who did it. And Dr. Halloran came out in 2011 and said, no, Lynn's been lying. Lynn was in the room, but I was the guy who pumped John's heart and tried to save him. And the problem with what Dr. Lynn did was, this is, this is the real tragedy of it, because he was allowed to lie for 30 years and the media weren't doing their job and they weren't checking the facts and finding out whether he was the real guy. And shockingly, this guy's been on multiple documentaries saying that he's the doctor who tried to save John Lennon's life. The, the reason that what Lynn couldn't do because he wasn't there operating on John was he couldn't say for 30 years where John's wounds were because he didn't see them up close. He was in the room, but he was standing in the background. So if, if they actually, but if Lynn didn't lie and Hallam was allowed to speak his truth from November, uh, December the 9th, 1980, the next day and said, yeah, he had four shots in the front and three out the back. Journalists might have gone, hang on a minute. The NYPD and Mark Chapman are saying he was shot in the back. And we might not have had to wait for my book and 43 years for the truth to come out. So, so Dr. Lin is, is a shockingly shameful what he did. It's just shocking. Even now, I believe he's still trying to double down on it because obviously the problem with these kind of lines is when people construct them and they say something and it, and it becomes public, it, they can't stand the shame of, of admitting they lied. And uh, Right. That, he's probably that, gotten paid, though. I bet if he's been in documentaries, he's gotten a little bit of something. They usually spread some money out. And it is interesting, too, that your book came out, I think, December, at least in the States, December 4th. 2023 right. and if you're watching this on rockfin or twitter you can see that this one from apple john lennon murder without trial came out the six so it's really remarkable and it features a lot of the people that you cover in your book right it does yeah i, I knew this was happening because i was obviously talking to a lot of people uh, for my book who were saying they were talking you know to the people on, the, on this documentary I, I i recommend you watch it uh because you've got people in there what you see there you've got charles mcgowan there that guy sitting in a church mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, very interesting character. We'll talk about him in a little while. You've got Kim Hogreff there, the guy on the right in the blue suit. Kim's the DA prosecuting guy who sowed the seed that we must never say Mark Chapman's name because it gives him what he wants, though Mark Chapman never wanted fame. That's quite obvious. Uh, but by Kim saying that, we don't ever talk about the murder, which is very convenient for the prosecuting DA, who was way in over his head, Kim Hogreff. Now, the guy down there in the glasses... Um, William is a very interesting man. This is a lovely segue, actually, into, excuse me, the, uh, the legal case, the so-called defense that Mark Chapman had. That guy there is called David Suggs. Now, David Suggs was an assistant to Mark Chapman's actual defense uh, lawyer, a guy called Jonathan Marks, who was a private lawyer. Jonathan Marks should not have got the gig. Uh, it should have been a public defender. There was a public defender who was initially put on the case 
uh, a guy called Herbert Adlerberg, who was a kind of old school guy who got lots of death threats for the first couple of days he was on the on the job. So those death threats made him leave the job. And then a guy called Jonathan Marks, a young trial lawyer with very little experience, suddenly got the biggest case of his life. Right, so he goes from death. he goes from uh, doing private cases to criminal. So he does civil cases next. It's kind of like the Melvin Bell, I think. Like Melvin Bell is a civil lawyer. Next thing you know, he's the lawyer for Jack Ruby. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. And Jonathan Marks is uh, is a guy who's kept in the shadows now for quite some time. He did he did a little bit of TV stuff in the nineties. He's not done any since. And I think that's a wise course of action for Jonathan Marks. And I'll tell you why. Jonathan Marks worked in a building called Thirty Rockefeller Plaza. Okay, which is a very big, plush, expensive uh office complex it's quite right, famous. here in the states they have a comedy show called 30 rock so yeah it's right in the center of it's, it's iconic iconic yeah. and expensive now yeah. you've got to ask yourself the question first question you've got to ask is how did jonathan marks as a one-man band afford that so he's a very young lawyer up and coming so somewhat he got funds from somewhere uh so that's quite interesting yeah there it is uh so yeah what a place for a young up-and-coming lawyer to find himself working out of but yeah he had his own office there and that's that's verifiable Class now, A office building at the epicenter of Midtown Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. And now, David Suggs, the guy with the glasses you had on earlier there. Now, David Suggs worked in that building as well, uh, in the same building. And David Suggs worked for a company called Donovan, Newton, Irving and Leisure. Now, what's interesting about this law firm, which was set up after the Second World War, is it was set up by uh, Wild Bill Donovan, the actual founder of the CIA. <laughs> so it was basically the CIA's law firm. It was a wash with spooks, former and current. It was, if the CIA had their own in-house law firm that was off-site, it wasn't in Langley, it would be, yeah. Be there. Wild, Bill Wild Bill Donovan's law firm. Yeah, there it right. is. And that's the law firm that David Suggs worked for. In fact, an ex an ex um. CIA director called William Colby used to work at Donovan Newton. So this really is the CIA's kind of uh, hangout, so to speak. Um, so David Suggs went to work with Jonathan Marks. Now, I'm not saying there's anything nefarious about Marks and Suggs. You know, maybe they were just played and maybe they were kind of used to get people into Mark Chapman's cell. But what's interesting about Suggs and Marks, you can tell on this Apple series, actually, because Suggs makes it quite clear on the Apple series, he just basically says, well, we knew he was insane. We knew Mark Chapman did it. So it's just a case of, you know, trying to get him insane or not insane. There's, there's no question he, he didn't do it. And I'm thinking, but you're his lawyers. You should have questioned it. You should have looked into where, I mean, all, all Suggs and Marks had to do was talk to the nurses and doctors who actually treated John and say, where was he shot? They never bothered to do it because I don't think they were looking very carefully. And I don't think they wanted to look very carefully. Actual... I think they had a set conclusion, and they had to actually kind of massage Chapman's personality and everything like that to yeah, go yeah, with the fact that he was crazy. Just for right. people who aren't watching this, literally like Rockefeller Center from the Dakota, 20 blocks in, in uh, on Manhattan, really not that far away, like walking distance. Like, you're right on site of this event. Yeah, it, very interesting that Jonathan got that job in that building. But anyway, so here's, here's things where things get start getting quite nefarious. Um, what Jonathan Marks decided to do after three days, three days after the murder, he goes to the New York Post and says, I'm going to send hypnotists into Mark Chapman's cell, which is incredible. And actually, to, to the credit of one journalist who can be seen on this Apple TV series, he actually says to Jonathan Marks, isn't Milton Klein a hypnotist? 
Uh, and doesn't he kind of, you know, doesn't he, is he kind of, you know, why, why is, why is he going in there? Is, isn't he a bit of a strange character? And Jonathan Marks looks a little bit uncomfortable. What, what Jonathan Marks possibly didn't know, but let's be kind and say he didn't know, was that Jonathan, that, that Milton Klein, this psychiatrist, hypnotist, who was going to put in much out himself, was a consultant for the CIA on their Manchurian candidate MK Ultra um, project. Uh, he literally was the guy who was brought in to try and create a killer, a murderer under hypnosis. And he's actually, what's, what's disturbing, there we go. This is Milton <laughs> Klein, Freud and hypnosis. There we go. I actually have some of his books. Good stuff. Yeah. I mean, Milton Klein is a very disgusting, horrible little worm of a man. He's dead now, sadly, so he's got away with it. But Milton Klein um, basically boasted, would you believe, William, I'm sure you've seen the clip, on yes. a, I think it was an ABC documentary in 1979, a year before Jonathan Marks hired him. Mission boasted. Mind Control. I did a show Mission, Mission Mind Control. Control. Amazing, yeah. amazing documentary where a lot of the evil players come out of the woodwork and, and basically hang themselves by talking too much. But basically Milton Klein is on there boasting that he can create a Manchurian candidate and a killer within a matter of, I think it's weeks, possibly months. Now, Jonathan Marks had to have known this because he used Milton Klein in 1979 in another case. So you're trying to tell me that Milton Klein and Jonathan Marks didn't have a discussion sometime between 1979 and 1980 when we know they were working together. Oh, by the way, I was on TV last night, Jonathan. Yeah, I was on this uh, CIA mind control, MK Ultra thing, mentoring candidate. Yeah, I was boasting about how, how fantastic I am at creating murderers under hypnosis. Right, so he shows up on there. And the, when is the Lennon murder? It's June, is it June 1980? It's December it? 1980, December. so a year, a year yeah, so later. it's like within a year. Yeah. yeah, within a year, you know, Jonathan Marks hires him and sends him into Mark Chapman's cell and the door gets shut. No independent assessors in there. And it wasn't just Jonathan Marks sending in Klein. He sent in Bernard Diamond, who is the nefarious psychiatrist slash hypnotist who was in Siren Siren's um, cell and case. Mm -hmm. He also sent in a guy called, um, let me think of his name now, uh, Richard Bloom, another hypnotist who was part of the same association that Milton Klein was and another guy who was attached to to intelligence and even the prosecuting uh, team from Kig Holt, Kim Hongreff, the DA's office in Manhattan, sent in a guy called Emmanuel Hammer, who's a guy who was into hypnotic suggestion and was another hypnotist. So Mark Chapman, it was basically a hypnotist convention in Mark Chapman's prison cell. And oh, what's incredible so is, it is, it is strange. And what's really weird as well, William, is the lawyer Fenton Bresler, British lawyer who wrote a book about this in the late 80s, he was horrified. He could not believe how all these people had access to Mark Chapman's cell and they could get it, get to him whenever they wanted. And Mark could ring them and they could ring him, not just the hypnotist, but anybody, anybody could get to Mark if they wanted to get to him. And he was horrified that a guy that was up for murder, that was a, a trial coming up could be got at in this way with nobody overseeing what Mark was saying and what these people who were getting to him were saying. So we'll, we'll get to what I believe Milton Klein was meant to be doing in there. But we, just to roll back to David Suggs and, uh, and Jonathan Marks, you know, Mark Chapman did not have a defence because as they both stated on multiple occasions, and David Suggs says it in this Apple TV series, Mark did it. We know Mark did it. And we were just trying to get him off on an insanity. And, and that's basically it. There, there, there was never any question in their mind that something was awry or possibly there was and they just didn't want to go there. Who knows? But the fact that Jonathan Marks worked in the same building that Donovan Newton did, and he worked with the Donovan Newton employee, and they hired CIA consultants to go into Mark Chapman's cell, is absolutely shocking. So let, let's, 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 while we're there, let's just quickly finish this, William. I think what, the reason I think Milton Klein and Siren Siren, when they're all in there, I think they were messing with Mark's mind. 
I think they were trying to figure out what Mark remembered. Because if you actually read Mark's statement on the night of the murder, he remembers very little. He doesn't really remember shooting John. Just he doesn't like remember. His, yeah, he doesn't kind of remember the, why the bullet. You know, he thought it's strange the bullets were working. He doesn't remember. Doesn't remember aiming. Doesn't remember pulling the hammer. Uh, this is not a guy who's a cold, calculated killer. He, had, he said he had nothing against Lennon, nothing against the Beatles. Confused guy. Just said he was com- felt compelled to be there. So. After that statement, you got people like Milton Klein piling into his police cell. So I think everything from that point onwards is forget it. You know, Mark's been got at at this point. Uh, so I think that was the first job that Milton Klein and Diamond and Bloom and Hammer, possibly they was prosecuting, were all in there to do. They're all in there, I think, to do their nefarious business to mess with Mark's mind. Now, incredibly, this didn't go to trial, William. Just two weeks before it was meant to go to trial, okay, in June 1981. Mark, the official narrative is that Mark rang up Jonathan Marks. Mark Chatton rang up his lawyer, Jonathan Marks, and said, I want to plead guilty. God told me to do it. Okay, so that's the official narrative. Very basic, kind of weird still. God told you to do it, really? Yeah, he came to me last night and told me. But I've discovered that the truth is far more nefarious than that. One thing we found out about what Milton Klein was saying to to Mark Chatton in his cell was, through, through a journalist called Jim Gaines, he revealed in some 1987 articles that Mark Chapman and, and Milton Klein discussed Mark Chapman's little people, which is a, a, a concept that only arrived after Milton Klein got into Chapman's cell. There's apparently this imaginary little people kingdom in Mark's head that he had control over. It was a government, it was an army, and Mark was the omnipotent god of the little people in his own imagination. Now, this is something that Klein talked to him about. No one else, none of Mark's friends and family have ever mentioned a little people thing before this. Plenty do now. They go, oh, yeah, he was always going on about his little people because obviously they've been told it now that that's what he did. But there there was never any indication that this was something that Mark was into. But what's interesting is what Mark Chapman actually said to Jonathan Marks is this. When he rang Jonathan Marks up and said he didn't want a trial, he didn't say it was God. He said he saw a battle on his cell floor. And it was a battle between the little people of God and the little people forces of the devil. And the little people forces of God beat the little people forces of the devil. And the general of the little people of God got up into Mark's palm and whispered in his ear, plead guilty. God wants you to plead guilty. So this was a concept that was put into Mark's mind by CIA consultant Milton Klein. And I believe it was a concept that was put into his mind as a device to get Mark to plead guilty. Because if it went to trial, if Mark did go to trial and it was about to, we were just two weeks away from going to trial, everything about the forensics, the medical, Mark's background, all the treatment he had from really dubious individuals, the whole shooting match would would have come out and it would have been thrown out of court. Yeah, no, it would have been a disaster. It would have, yeah. they, they had to get him to plead guilty to avoid hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. And, and they, the timing is incredible too, right? So, pleads yeah, guilty, it all yeah. gets stripped off. He's bad. He's crazy. And they established within sometime in the time of the murders to the time that he pled guilty that he had demons which never were around. There's like in, uh, inconsistent elements of Chapman because most people who knew him thought he was very gregarious and that he was good with children, which means that he's not like an intimidating guy or and so there's personality changes in him i think if you observe or look at his story that are very very obvious i think to him and also the the fact that they're building this narrative of him kind of being totally crazy 
I think is really what they were really doing too after the shooting too. They were, they were right, right from day one. You know, I think the lawyers were saying Mark, Marks, Jonathan Marks and, and David Suggs were saying he's crazy, he's insane. And they, they, there's stories about him, you know, saying crazy stuff in, in the cell and stuff uh, to them. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think Mark did become crazy. I think so many people messed with his mind. I think he did become a, 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 an insane guy. But I've discovered that there was a, a doctor at Castle Memorial Hospital in Hawaii, which is where Mark was 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 being treated in the um, from 1978 onwards. Now, 1977, sorry, onwards to probably right up until I suspect 1979, where apparently he left the employment at the hospital because he was being treated there first. Then he became a janitor. We know a doctor there called Dr. Gasahani uh, was doing brainwashing techniques with drugs on patients. We know this because another doctor a navy commander who was working at castle memorial hospital actually came out and, and signed an affidavit and said that um Gusahani was treating people uh with brainwashing and drugs and brainwashing hypnosis techniques we know that was now going on at castle memorial and we know that dennis Mee lee the guy who was running the hospital has confirmed that Gusahani was treating mark chapman he clearly has not confirmed that he was doing brainwashing Mealy doesn't want to go that far but we know that Gersahani was doing this and we know that Gersahani was treating Chapman. And we know that another doctor, who another psychiatrist who left, who left Castle Memorial, went on the record and said that Gersahani was, was treating patients with brainwashing techniques. So I think that's, that's where a lot of the work was done on Mark. I think that's where, but if, if, if you roll back, I, I think Mark was identified, Mark Chapman, as a potential Manchurian candidate when he was a, when he was a teenager. I think Mark's whole persona, if you talk to his friends and family, he was a guy who was very eager to please. He's one of these guys, you know, in the, the sort of, he wanted to be in the popular group, but he was never going to be in the popular group. He always got it wrong. He was always tripping up. He was always saying the wrong things. But, you know, he, he kind of, classic, most people are like this. You know, most people want to be the cool guy in school and they try to get into the cool groups. But for Mark, it, it was a kind of a bit of an obsession, really. And, um, and I think he was pliable and I think he was desperate to please. That's another thing. That's the one thing I agree with Ron Hoffman, Detective Ron Hoffman. That's something that he told me that he was convinced of, that Mark was a guy who was very easy to manipulate because he was so easy to please. That's Ron there, yeah. That's in the, uh, Yeah, I mean, that's Detective Ron Hoffman. Now, now he's the guy who gave me his notebooks and paperwork, uh, which you can actually see in this Apple series, actually. He's got them all out on his table. Uh, so, Rob, you know, history owes Ron a debt. Now, this guy here, interesting, just go back Peterson. quickly. This, this guy is Richard Peterson. Now, Richard Peterson in this Apple TV series, if you watch it at face value, the way it's been edited, you would think that Richard Peterson saw John Lennon get shot by Mark Chapman's bullets. Now, here's something that's very important for people to get their head around. No person, including Richard Peterson, saw Mark Chapman's alleged bullets hit John Lennon. That includes uh, Yoko Ono, and that includes Mark Chapman. I'll get to Mark in a moment. But Richard Peterson, what he says he did, and I've interviewed Richard a few times, very interesting character, he said he pulled up behind the Lennon's limo, which I think he probably did. I think he said he saw Chapman standing by the sidewalk. Didn't see the doorman, which is odd, but he said he saw Chapman. He said he saw Chapman with a gun. This I believe he definitely did see. He said he saw Chapman raise a gun and shoot, which again, I think he might have seen because I think Chapman was shooting blanks. But Peterson has told me, and Peterson has never said anything otherwise, that he, John was out of his sight because John's gone right into the driveway now. And from where Peterson's car was adjacent to the sidewalk, he couldn't see inside the driveway and couldn't see the vestibule, couldn't see Chapman's bullets hitting John. He just assumed that's what was happening. Okay. Couldn't see it. All right. From where he was standing. But if you watch this TV series, it's cutting away. 
Now, I'm not saying it's deliberate, but it's cut in a way that makes you think that Peterson saw Chapman's bullets hit Chapman, uh, hit, hit Lennon. He did not. Okay, so that's right. a really so, important point, Matt. So that's kind of, people have watched, if they watch that, they'll get, oh, well, the, the, the taxi driver, Richard Peterson, saw it. Game over. No, he did not. He did not see it. So and that's really important. And Peterson has kind of added things over the years, sadly. He's, again, a bit like some of the people I told, talked to you about earlier. He's added detail. He basically said um, at the time he saw uh, Chapman, saw a gun, heard gunfire. End of story. That's his, that's his initial statement in, in um, Ron Hoffman's notebook. He's now added, 43 years later, that he heard Chapman shout out to Lennon, hey, John Lennon. Right? That's added. That wasn't what he said at the time. Extra and stuff. I, I'm, that's just extra stuff that he's heard elsewhere and he's decided to add. He's also, even when I was talking to him, William, he added stuff because I kind of said to him, did John and, and Mark exchange any glance and stuff as John was walking past Mark? And he said, uh, yeah, now you come to mention it, he said. Yeah, he might have nodded at Mark and Mark might have nodded at him. And I just thought, you just added that. You just literally just added right. a bit more. Right, he injects him into the case. Now he's an important guy, witness to John Lennon. Exactly. And, and one last thing to say, yeah, one yeah. last thing to say about Peterson as well is he's kind of like, he, he's come out with stuff to me about stuff that the police did to him in the station. He said they got out John's bloody clothes and put them in front of him. We know that's not the case. We know, I've spoke to the nurses, that John's clothes were sent off to the autopsy medical officer uh, that night. There's no way the police could have had John's bloody clothes and put them in front of Peterson. And there's one last thing I'll say about him. Various witnesses, not just one, but two witnesses have said that after hearing gunfire, they saw a yellow taxi drive off at top speed. And I think that's what's happened. I think Peterson saw Chapman, heard gunfire, shot off as anybody would do and got away from the scene. And I think he parked up and I think he walked back. And I picked, I think he picked up from the doorman and various witnesses that were milling around what actually happened. And I think he inserted himself into history and it's come to fruition. He's now on an Apple TV documentary talking as a main witness to John and his murder. Right. And probably getting paid. And here's Joe yeah, Manny. That, so a lot of these that's Joe Manny. Book, it's Joe yeah. Manny. Yeah, they're the, they're the two nurses, the two most wonderful ladies. No nonsense, New York. You've got Barbara Camera there on the left, and you've got Diatra Sato on the right. Wonderful women who, to this day, cannot understand why the world can't understand where John's actual wounds were. And what's really important about these two nurses is not only did they help Dr. Haller and try and save John when he first came in, they actually took John's body away and washed it and shrouded it. So they got to see John's wounds close up twice in fact three times because they had to re-wrap and re-wash john when elliot gross came in and strangely asked to see the see the wounds before the autopsy so are they so asked the, that are they asked that in this documentary about the well, who knows who knows see, sadly all, all that comes up in the documentary is um them just basically saying john came in we tried to save him so so all the wound right. stuff sadly conveniently left out it's not in there. There's Dr. Halloran, the guy who came out in 2011. He's the real doctor. He's the guy who actually did try and save John Lennon's life. You can find clips on my YouTube channel, Assassination of Lennon, where he's actually gone on news programs, Dr. Halloran said, John was shot four times in the upper left chest, three coming out the back. Wow, so amazing. Halloran's gone on the record and said that on, on camera, on tape. Who's this woman, Naomi Goldstein? I don't recall her in your book. Yeah, I, I briefly mention her. Naomi is one of the people who assessed Mark at, when he first came into Rikers Island and Bellevue Hospital. She was one of the, uh, I think she was a Bellevue Hospital psychiatrist who gave an, an initial first assessment of Mark. What's, what's good about Naomi is, is she's not, 
intelligence linked. Isn't that refreshing? And she's not a hypnotist involved in MK Ultra. So uh, Naomi's possibly one of the good guys. <laughs> one of the one of the few. That's yeah, one of the few. It is remarkable to see this. But this guy Charles McGowan is still around. Like this guy has lasted forever. He's still doing interviews and things like that in okay, 2023 because I saw him. Yeah, let, let's talk about Charles Charles McGowan. Pastor Charles McGowan. I, I, I think Charles first came into Mark's life when Mark was a teenager. Uh, he was his local uh, pastor in his local church, Chapelwood uh, Presbyterian. Um, he uh, he became involved in Chapman's life to a point where when Mark was 15, Charles McGowan sent him off to a crazy hypnotist slash psychiatrist slash, slash uh, exorcist, a guy called Fred Krauss. Uh, a guy who messed with Mark Chapman's mind. Uh, now, we, we can't be certain that Charles McGowan himself sent Mark off to see Fred Krause because all I know is that it was Chapelwood Church who sent Mark to this so-called prayer group with Fred Krause. But as Charles McGowan was the pastor of Chapelwood Church at the time, you would suspect he knew where young, impressionable teenagers were going and what was happening when they got there. When they did get there with Fred Krauss, there was exorcisms, there was talking in tongues, there was talk about demons. And I think this was where Fred Krauss is, is, is a guy who I think tried to uh, impress on Mark Chapman that he was um, possessed by demons, which is a, current, a, a concurrent theme in Mark's life that was used when it was convenient and it was used after the murder, which we'll get into in a little while. So Charles McGowan, almost certainly knew that Mark was going to this very strange guy who I think was basically trying to crack Mark Chapman and trying to trying to break his mind early on. Uh, Mark was very much into LSD at the time. And this is a time also when Mark said he saw G he had a vision of seeing Jesus Christ. I think when you've got people like Fred Krauss, LSD, exorcisms, uh, visions of Christ, I think all these things were were not haphazard. I think it was part of a program to get Mark to feel that he was some kind of Christian uh, jihadi almost. And I, I'll tell you why I say this. Just just after the murder, a hypnotist, yet another hypnotist on, in, on, in, on the island of Hawaii, a man called Jules Bernhardt, very interesting character. He came out and gave one interview and one interview only, and he's disappeared from history. He very quickly was put down the uh, historical memory hole. But just after the murder, he was interviewed, I believe by the National Enquirer, would you believe? And they basically said, to, he said, yeah, I was, a, I was a family friend of Mark Chapman. And he was a, uh, he, he saw himself as an avenging angel for Christ, i.e. Chapman. And he told Bernhardt this. And Bernhardt said, if, if Lennon never came out with his bigger than Christ stuff, and if he never came back into the public conscience, the plot, as Bernhardt call it, to kill Lennon, would not have been hatched in Chapman's mind. So I think Bernhardt was trying to give a clue there that religion and Chapman being some kind of Christian crusader, taking out the evil communist uh, occult loving John Lennon, who said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. I'm sure that was a factor in it all. And I think that was used as a driver to get Mark Chapman to uh, start to obsess over John Lennon and obsess over trying to do the Lord's work by taking out John Lennon. And what you've got with Charles McGowan, unfortunately, in the background is Charles McGowan isn't just a pastor. He he was a special agent in Navy intelligence, uh, counterintelligence. Um, so he's basically a spook, uh, was a spook. He'll probably say that he's not anymore. But I think we all know William, once a spook, always a spook. 
Uh, and Charles McGowan kept himself in Mark Chapman's life right up until this present day. So if you want to get to Mark in prison, if you want to talk to Mark or Gloria, you have to kind of get Charles's okay. Charles is wow. the guy who, and I know he funds Gloria Mark's activities with regards to sort of Christian pamphlets and stuff. I know there's a financial arrangement there between McGowan and, and Chapman, which I find very strange. Um, but the ultimate uh, kind of disturbing, very disturbing uh, anomaly in the Charles McGowan story with regards to Mark Chapman is on the night of Lennon's murder, Charles McGowan, uh, very early on, before Mark Chapman's name was released to the to the press, because remember, Mark Chapman's name didn't get released to a, to a press uh, conference around about sort of 3 a.m. in the basement of the 20th Precinct. All the press were there. I've got there's a recording, an audio recording of this you can find on my YouTube channel. Then Chapman's name was revealed. So when, when the news broke of Lennon's assassination, around about sort of 11, 12 o'clock on TV stations around um, on the east East Coast time uh, in America. Uh, Chapman's name wasn't revealed. So people really didn't get to know about Mark Chapman until the next morning. That, that's when they got his name. That's when his name actually was on the sort of early morning TV bulletins. Problem is, um, Charles McGowan was rung up by a preacher, an evangelist preacher from the UK, actually. He's dead now. A guy called Stephen Alford, who rang up McGowan and said to McGowan, uh, you need to go and help Mark Chapman. You need to go and fly over there and get one of our preachers into his cell. Now, there's two very important, I would say, critical questions that need to be asked here is question number one. How did Stephen Alford, superstar evangelist preacher, even know that Charles McGowan knew Mark Chapman, who was actually in Hawaii from 77 to 1980 and wasn't actually Charles McGowan wasn't his pastor at that point, And Mark Chapman was just a nobody. At this point, you know, he's just a guy didn't achieve anything in his life. How could Alford know McGowan knew him? But even more importantly, how did McGowan and Alford know Mark Chapman shot John Lennon at such an early stage? It's impossible. How could they know? It's 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 there is no way they could have known because his name wasn't revealed for many, many hours after that point. But somehow Alford and McGowan knew that the person who had just murdered John Lennon, who wasn't revealed on the news at that point, was Mark Chapman. I want to know how Charles McGowan knew that and how Stephen Alford knew that and how Stephen Alford knew Charles McGowan was Mark Chapman's pastor. So what, Chap what McGowan did was he flew out immediately on Stephen Alford's dime. Stephen Alford paid for it. He put him up in, in his hotel that Stephen Alford owned, which was attached to a church in New York. Stephen Alford paid for some of Mark Chapman's legal fees, would you believe? Very, very accommodating That's man, Stephen. Yeah. For someone who does I mean, obviously, the, the <clears throat> angle they'll play is, hey, it was a Christian doing Christian charity. But why? Why sure. would you do that? What, what, what was in it for you, Stephen? So Stephen's bankroll in McGowan's, let's call it kind of urgent dash to Mark Chapman's side. And remember, McGowan wasn't Chapman's pastor at this point. There was another pastor in Hawaii called Pete Anderson. Another Southern Baptist who had a military link, just like Charles McGowan, who was looking after Chapman in Hawaii. So why McGowan? Why did McGowan do that? And when you actually look at what happened after Mark Chapman was convicted and went in his cell, you've got these other Southern Baptist preachers, people like Don Dickerman and Ken Babington, who are all that kind of 
southern Charles McGowan type figures who are desperate to get into Mark Chapman's cell and tell him that he's possessed by demons. And they needed to do the demons thing because I don't know, needed is the wrong word. But up until that point, Mark Chapman said that up until March 1981, Mark Chapman was saying that he shot John Lennon to promote Capture in the Rye. We all know this. He, he thought he was a character in the book. Problem is, when John Hinckley tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan, he um, he had in his hotel room, he had a copy of Capture in the Rye. Now, that's a big problem because that's kind of like Capture in the Rye attached to two uh, assassinations, one attempt, one successful. So I think mm -hmm. at that point there was a definitely in, in Jonathan Marks and David Suggs's kind of instructions to Milton Klein and various preachers that we know McGowan possibly won the person that Stephen Alford told McGowan to put in Chapman's cell, possibly number two. And what, what you start to see happening is, William, is they tried to get Mark Chapman through gaslighting, through exorcisms, sometimes remote, sometimes would you believe done by prison guards, that Mark Chapman was possessed by demons. And these demons are the ones who made Mark Chapman kill John Lennon, not human demons, spiritual demons, that they were helping mark exercise from his from himself and this is something that mark believed in eventually to the point where he he's sort of talked about demons coming out of his of his body on the cell floor and yeah he, apparently he was allowed to have a red light glowing in his cell for six months and it's just for me it's um, obviously some people believe in demons but for me i, I saw this as a gaslighting operation where they needed to switch away from catcher and, and not talk about Dr. Kasahani doing brainwashing techniques in Hawaii, not talk about Fred Krauss breaking his mind when he was 15. Uh, just, just let's talk about just generic demons, Mark, that possessed you. And it wasn't you. It wasn't some kind of programming you had. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just, you know, demons took you over and made you do it. And to this day, Mark Chapman still believes that's the case. So it kind of worked. It kind of worked, you know. And Chapman is now an evangelical preacher in prison. So he's really taken on that kind of mantle that I've gone through this horrible experience with demons and I've come out the other side and now I'm preaching the Lord's word. And I just think he's been, I think he's just very low intelligence guy, William, who's just been manipulated from the day he was identified when he was a teenager as someone who could be a Manchurian candidate. And it doesn't have to be a CIA thing either, William. I mean, you know this, you know you're MK Ultra better than I do. You know, Navy intelligence was deeply involved in MKUltra, deeply involved in Manchurian candidates. And there was a, a commander called William Neurat, who was speaking at a NATO conference in the mid 70s after MKUltra was exposed uh, at the church committee hearings and basically said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, Navy intelligence, we've got we've got Manchurian candidates all over the world, all over right. the world. And we can just call them up whenever we want to be an assassin. Uh, and he yeah, there was a brief his... record of him talking, I think, in Stockholm or something like that. Correct, correct. And, and he, he wrote a thesis a... on it. You can't find the thesis. And that story was just memory hold as fast as possible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, but the big mistake he made was, William, is he said it to a Sunday Times journalist who, who reported it in the Sunday Times the next day. Of course, the Navy retracted it and said he was right. talking hypothetically. Right. They had yeah. to. Quick. But what's interesting and disturbing about good old Charles McGowan is his Navy intelligence. Now, I'm sure that's just a coincidence, William. I'm, I'm sure, sure there's nothing. I'm sure there's nothing sure nefarious is. about Charles There's Navy Gowan. all over Oahu, where Chapman was. All of those naval bases, um, Pearl Harbor. It's just, I mean, come on. It gets, it gets the, that gets intense. And all these guys are young, too. I think that Chapman and Hinckley 
four months apart, the same age, 26, right? I mean, this this is so crazy. People could not believe this, but um, I mean, I mean, the, the problem is, you know, I, I'm very disturbed. I, I wasn't looking for any of this. When I must put, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-religion. I'm not anti-Republican. I'm not anti-Democrat. I, I, I'm totally agnostic when it comes to politics, and I'm and I'm agnostic when it comes to religion. Actually, so uh, you know, I've got no foot in either camp, and I wasn't looking for a kind of Southern Baptist group of men that sort of controlled Mark Chapman, but there they 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 appeared there they are there, there. there no they are you know and and there's questions I just, to be asked there really is we, i sent you asked. that one thing about how the cia used pastors and people in christianity to fulfill so these guys may have deeper connections that aren't public and a lot of these guys at the higher levels of christianity protestant christianity we're not talking about catholics which is a whole nother story and we can get mm. into the jesuits oh yeah they're, 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 protestant yeah, they're just as much in protestant yeah. christianity I just did an interview with a guy. It was called the Emerging Apostasy. These guys believe have this purge doctrine, where at a certain point you take your dominion and enact these judgments on people who you need to expose, expunge, or expunge from society. So they may have those doctrines at the very top, and a long-term old guy like Charles McGowan may have those internal ideas. And on the surface, he's just preaching standard presbyterian stuff but sometimes these leaders they have different ideas well let's 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 go let, while, while you say it, you're right one thing charles mcgowan does and again i just want to point out i'm not saying charles mcgowan is guilty of any offenses here but I, I, I do believe i do believe he has a lot of questions to answer uh and one one thing that i know charles does is he places pastors all over the world and, and you know we know and i'm saying again this isn't charles doing this but other other preachers and pastors being placed over the world there was a big problem and it actually had to come out, I think, in Congress. It was such a big problem back in the day. Back in the 90s, it became exposed that they were just, they were, they were, they were spies, they were agents, and they were being placed, uh, you know, in, into communities all around the world as undercover as preachers and pastors. And, and you know, what better way to do it than, than a man of the cloth, you know, coming in into a community, doing the, doing the Lord's work, and, uh, and then doubling up to do other work. So... So, yeah, McGowan is, is someone that I, I just wasn't expecting to find. But there he is. He, he's very much from very early on in Mark's life, right up until today, has been part of Mark Chapman's life. And, and, it, it, and we should also say that he was good friends, um, Charles McGowan, with people like Cortis Cooper, who's a Pentagon uh, titan and worked at the RAND Corporation. Another, well, we know what the RAND are all about and, and their ties to the deep state. You've, and Charles McGowan also knew Joe Rogers, and Joe Rogers was actually the guy who bankrolled and was basically the, the the main money man for Ronald Reagan's election campaigns. So Joe Rogers is the guy who made Ronald Reagan actually happen, and he was good friends with Charles McGowan. So I think we know where Charles McGowan's allegiance is well with regards to to a uh, to his uh, Ronald Reagan kind of uh, support through his through his good friend Joe Rogers. So you just wonder whether someone like Joe Rogers was manipulating Charles McGowan, perhaps to uh to make sure a future critic of ronald reagan was taken out because that's very much what happened and as regards to stephen alford well stephen alford's you know there's a picture that i posted up recently of him laughing it out with richard nixon someone that he knew so again the links to nixon and reagan with alford and mcgowan are disturbing the links uh to lots of these southern baptist preachers to the navy to intelligence to the army these are not just straightforward, you know, guys who live in a cave, humble monks, you know, who just want to, you know, there's so much about Christianity. It's great, you know, turn the other cheek and 
help the poor and all that. It's not who these guys are. These guys, these guys are military. These guys are intelligence. These guys are they're serious players with serious connections at the highest level of government. So when I see these guys around Mark Chapman all his life, controlling him right from when he was a teenager to today, you, you'd be crazy not to ask questions. And, and no I doubt. think questions, questions even do more, need to be asked. If this guy, what was it, offers paying his, his legal bills, that's a mystery because Chapman, how is he affording these expensive flights all the way across the country? I mean, these are these are eight-hour flights. Probably like oh, well, yeah, let's, let's talk. Well, well, the Alford legal stuff came after Chapman was arrested, but you're right. Chap, Chapman traveled around the world when he was in Hawaii. Uh, he uh, all, all facilitated by his lovely wife, Gloria, who's another very interesting woman. Um, so, yeah, Chapman had money was never a problem for Mark Chapman. He, he could fly to Hawaii, uh, back and forth to New York, to Hawaii. He went to, to New York in October. He then flew down to Atlanta to allegedly get some bullets of his friend, flew back up to New York, flew back to Hawaii, flew back to New York. This guy via Chicago, th this guy, he was a jet setter. And even when he was arrested on the night of Lennon's murder, he, I think he had something like two and a half thousand dollars in his back pocket. You know, this was a janitor. This guy was a janitor. Where was that? He bought he bought modern art. He bought, you know, he bought some Dali lithographs. Where's the money coming from, Mark? Money, you know, not me and you. I'm sure you can't afford it. Where I can't, I can't afford a round the world trip. I can't go to Asia oh, and Europe and no stuff. So, I mean, I'd love to. That's yeah. that's big money, and apparently he stayed in YMCA, so he made it cheaper. But there's still that's a lot of air flights, you know. It's a lot, of, a lot of money still has to be spent there. It's but a lot yeah, of money. Of, it's a lot of time you're not making money too, right? So you're not like for uh, sure, for sure. Like, and but the Castle Memorial Hospital decided to give him a loan. Uh, very bizarre. Very very bizarre. There are all these guys that are around these assassinations. Their backgrounds are so bizarre. Sirhan Sirhan. Hinkley, um, James Earl Ray, uh, Oswald, Oswald, Oswald. Yeah. All, yeah, they're yeah, all yeah. the same characteristics, and they're all almost in the same age group. It's so strange. They're 24 to 26. Hinkley yeah. and Chapman, 26. Sirhan, Sirhan, Oswald, 24. Earl Ray, I think, was 30, maybe. I don't know. I have to check. But like yeah. weird ages, and the same as the same. Earl Ray had the most mysterious story. Like, I think he was apprehended in like Canada. Raul well, they, they arrested him in Heathrow in the end. He was another jet. Yeah, setter. that's right. He was arrested yeah, in the UK. That's right. So another guy who just money. A petty criminal. A petty criminal with very low IQ, but yeah, he very could, low. You know, evade capture for months, jetting around the world, and, and again, a guy who spent time with hypnotists. You know, oh, so that's a whole other you know, show. But I'm just trying to put them all together. Like that's how mm. scary the assassination program in the United States is that. So many of our events, there's there's an element of all this stuff in it too. Yeah, it's it's just dark, and and I've got to be honest with you, I I, I don't regret it. I, I feel proud that I've got this information out, and I and I hope people will take it forward now and, and ask all questions. And I hope journalists, especially in America, where a lot of these people are still there, you know, I, I can only do so much here in the UK, but people like yourself, William, are going to hopefully take this forward now and inspire other people to take it forward. But I, I've got to be honest with you, my friend, when I started this. I was very innocent about the whole thing, you know. I I, I kind of fell into it, and it's it's been dark. I I found it. I, I really admire you because you do you do this all the time. I I and lots of different multifaceted stories and cases that you try and uncover. It's just so. It, I've it's, it's kind of really depressing. Dark, yeah, it's depressing. I, think that, I think that people don't realize how much of a thorn Lenin was in the side of the American establishment. He was anti-Christian. He believed in love. He's anti-war. 
and he was constantly railing against these people, and they finally just had enough. And there he was, right in the heart of Manhattan. He's right there in the heart of everything. The real power center, maybe it's not so much today, but the next point of all kinds of financial and cultural power, and there he is at the center, just thumbing his finger at all the American establishment. At a certain point, they just want John's got to go. He's, he's got yeah, so him. convenient. So convenient for the Reagan administration coming in. So convenient, let's say, for certain people who didn't like his stance on religion. Let's say, perhaps. I'm just surmising here. But what was interesting about Chapman is he never was into John Lennon or the Beatles. Okay? That, that's just a complete, let's just bury that myth. Um, when he went to lunch with two fans outside the Dakota, and I've got their testimony in, in Ron Hoffman's notebooks. One thing they say quite clearly is he knew nothing about the Beatles. He had no, no clue about the Beatles, literally no clue. And um, he wasn't even that aware, Chapman, that Double Fantasy was out. Right. <laughs> it was the girls who said, you should get his new album signed. So, you know, Chapman was not a Beatles obsessive, but he did become obsessed about John Lennon in the summer of 1980, okay, in Hawaii. And another thing he became obsessed about at the very same time was Catcher in the Rye. And I believe what was, what was done was, I believe they were fusing the phony element of Catcher in the Rye and morphing that phony onto John Lennon and saying, John Lennon is the phony that Holden Caulfield, Holden Caulfield famously hated phonies of the world. And I think they were trying to make Mark Chapman through hypnosis. We know he was seeing hypnotists. We know that, at Carson Memorial, who's being brainwashed. And I think they were saying that you are Holden Caulfield and you hate phonies, Mark. And the biggest phony in the world is that John Lennon. You know, that in, in a, famously, he was given a book with showing John in the Dakota in living in plush surroundings. And I believe it was very much implanted then. And I believe the timing of the summer of 1980, when they got Chapman fixated on John Lennon and Catcher and his mission, his compulsion, his runaway train, as he calls it himself, uh, was that Reagan was performing so well in the polls, it was almost guaranteed he was going to beat Carter in November. So they knew that in the summer of 1980. So they knew Ron was going to get in and they didn't want Lennon around to cause problems with that. And they knew Lennon was back in the recording studio, recording Double Fantasy. And they knew he was probably going to get political again. And just a week after he was assassinated, Lennon was due to go to San Francisco and be part of the political rally on behalf of Asian workers. So he was about to get, and he was going to go on a world tour. This was planned. You, you bet your bottom dollar the people who took him out would have known that a world tour was coming because his green card was going to be uh, completely, uh, you know, he, they couldn't, once January came, his four-year probation on his green card that he got in 76 would have been would have been complete. So once January 1981 had come around, his green card had been fully stamped and Lennon could have gone in and out of America with impunity and he could have done his world tour. He could have rallied against everything that Reagan did in Central America and all the Iran-Contra, all the horrors of the Reagan administration. Lennon would have been on it big time. And they knew he was planning concerts when Nixon was going for re-election before Watergate to, to attack Nixon. And Nixon was friends with Reagan. They would have known what, what Lennon would have done the second Ronnie got in. So yeah. it was so convenient. To Don't leave Bush out of the equation either. I mean, he's oh, always yeah. there always there 77 director of the cia so he don't know all about what they could do and what they couldn't do and of course he's he's there bush you can't get away from daddy bush in the back who's the benefit if he hinkley kills reagan who's the beneficiary there Somebody's you go putting all the pieces together on the chessboard you know that's there you go so i, I think you know I, I think when people read the book i think most people now are kind of saying well, it's kind of it's a done deal <laughs> you know he was a mature and patsy and, you know, they can see the path now. And I'm very proud that they can see the path. I mean, there's, there's people here. Let's just try and see. You know, we've got um, 
You've got people here, like Elliot Mintz there. The Who's publicist. Elliot Mintz? I don't know who this is. Who's this? This, this, is, um, this is the Lennon's publicist. He, he, he got into the Lennon's world through Yoko. He, he kind of ingratiated himself. He's, he's very much team Yoko. Uh, he's a real sycophant, rather unpleasant character as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he's, he's one of these guys who plays off both sides, so he pretends to have both opinions going on at the same time. Um, he's... He said in this series, actually, quite interestingly, I didn't bother interviewing him because he wasn't at the murder. Okay, he wasn't at he wasn't at the Dakota when John was assassinated. He very quickly got on a plane and was there the next morning. And he, he talks about dramatic things and seeing blood on the ground and blah, blah, blah. But he, he's got nothing to tell me because he wasn't there. So I'm not interested in his story. But what he does say in this Apple TV series, he says that um, Yoko asked him to look into conspiracy uh, after the murder. Interesting. Uh, sadly, he doesn't give us any details about where or how he looked into conspiracy. Uh, I well, he, one of the did. interesting things from his uh, Wikipedia page is that Mintz was the first to interview, first interview to be broadcast nationally came after the death of John F. Kennedy, where he discovered a classmate of his, Roland Bynum, Bynum had known Lee Harvey Oswald while in the U.S. Marines together. The interview was the first character and background interview done about Oswald in the U.S. and was picked up by the national and international radio broadcast networks. So. There you go. There you go. He's, he's a guy who knows how to get into. I think what he did with, with the Lennons is he realized that they were his ticket to fame. And he didn't. And famously, and I, I believe this, I don't think he ever charged them for his PR work. Uh, and the reason he did that was he knew that if he worked for the Lennons for free, he could then go to other famous celebrities in Hollywood and say, I'm Lennon's PR guy, which is what he did. And he's pretty much the friend and PR kind of consultant to every Hollywood major star in the last 40 years. So he really used that Lennon association to his benefit. Um, but with, regard, with regards to the murder, he's just got nothing to, he's got nothing to tell me. And I know he's team Yoko. He's, he's kind of very much loyal to her. He says he was John Lennon's best friend. He certainly was there in LA when John went with May Pang on the last weekend. Um, so he was around. I just can't see John Lennon being good friends with this guy, but apparently he says he was John Lennon's best friend. Maybe he's he cashed was. in. He's he's like Peterson. These guys show up on all the John Lennon documentaries. Yeah, well, so well to be fair to Peterson, to be fair to Peterson, he never did that. He's never actually been on one. He he, he gave. Oh, really? That's he, interesting. No, no, it was found first time for for my book and for this Apple Doc. Uh, and, and he kind of, you know, he said to me, I said to him, "Why why have you never done it before?" He said, "No one's asked me." Um, and and but but I've got his statement from, you know. December 80. Okay. Very basic statement. I saw Chapman, saw a gun, saw fire, didn't see John get hit, drove off. Now his statement is very different. He's adding so much more stuff about Chapman shouting out and Chapman nodding at John. And and obviously this TV series probably, you know, not 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 deliberately, but if you watch the edit, it does seem because I've had people come to me and go, Did Richard Peterson see John get hit by Chapman's bullets? I said, No, no, no. It, it, it's just the way that edit has been done so please don't don't fall for that guys david we are at almost the 90 minute mark where can people wow. find this book mind you uh on all amazon outlets um william thank you uh it's it's there and we are looking to do lots of different foreign language versions now and different territories so it will be coming out uh, south america we're going to go first and then we're going to go to to asia uh so it'll be going into traditional bookstores as well uh, probably in the spring there'll be a digital version of it in the spring as well and in the summer we're going to be doing a audio version so there's gonna be lots of different ways to get it but at the moment it's available on on amazon it's on amazon and a paperback version and where can people reach out to you if they have any, have any other questions or anything 
you want to sure, talk to you about? Sure. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter on Lennon, at Lennon Murder. Um, my Substack is David Whelan um, uh, at Substack.com. No, David Whelan, yeah, at Substack.com. So you can find me there. I put lots of articles on there. I'm, I'm still updating articles beyond the book. I just did one a couple of days ago on Gloria Chapman. She's come out and done a, a podcast. So what, what I'm doing is when, when, when characters in the story come out now beyond the book, I'm assessing and reviewing and analysing what they're saying because sometimes after a, after a book like mine comes out, uh, people come out with some new stuff. Uh, so that's good. So they can find that on my Substack, And I've got a YouTube channel, Assassination of Lennon. In fact, I just put up a, a video just yesterday on Mark Chapman, uh, who was asked what happened after John got hit with your bullets. And Chapman said, oh, I think he went inside, but I turned around. So Chapman can't, because he can't say what happened to John with his bullets, because I don't think he saw his bullets hit John Lennon. And he kind of, he, he said what he was told happened. John went in and ran inside with composure, would you believe, Mark said how someone can have composure with four big holes in them is, is beyond me. But Mark said he couldn't see this because he must have turned around, which is an incredible new video that I've discovered. So please go on my YouTube channel and find that. And please share it, guys. And just, it's, it's very difficult, this. You know, the guy, the guy who allegedly did it, there's Jay Hastings, there's Jay, and his security card that he didn't like. Um, yeah, so it's very difficult, guys, because the guy who did it still thinks he did it. Uh, so most Beatles fans and most people interested in this can't get their head around beyond that, that the guy who said he did it, said he, so what is there to look at? He admitted it. But I think once you read my book and, um, and get into the background of Chapman and actually find out what really happened on the ground, I think you'll see that it didn't go down the way we were told it went down. And it's awesome. almost, I think there's overwhelming evidence that Mark Chapman was a Manchurian patsy. He wasn't the one who did it. And the name no. of the book, book, full title is Mind Games. The Assassination of John Lennon and the author is David Whelan, W-H-E-L-A-N. And I will put links to your Twitter and Substack. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Willie. Really enjoyed it. All right, take care. Stay there. Thank you.